feel something like the, uh, the lame person who was healed and Jesus said, take up your bed and walk. He says to this old preacher, take up your pulpit and walk. Good to see Trevor and Maria Hollis here. Stand up and let us welcome you. We love you guys. Thank you for joining us today. What a blessing. We spent the last four months together on Sunday morning studying the book of Romans together. Along with the Roman Christians, in the first 11 chapters, we have covered all the major doctrines of the Christian faith. Paul then begins chapter 12 with therefore. Based upon everything that we've talked about that we believe, what God has done and what he's teaching us, therefore, here's the practical applications. Here's how you walk this faith out, how you live as Christians. Now we're coming to the conclusion of Paul's letter. To the Roman church. Chapter 15 ends with, Now be the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, what do you think of when somebody says amen at the end of a prayer? Done, right? Let's get up and go. That's what you would think when you see that in the 15th chapter. You think he's finished. Not so. You turn the page to chapter 16. And he has, it's not really quite a postscript. But he goes on from the amen to make it very personal. In the first several verses of chapter 16, he's greeting many of the Christians who are in the church at Rome. And and the theme as he goes through, you can tell that he has a personal relationship with these people. He's thanking them for their faith and for their obedience as they've been living out their faith. But then, after he does the greeting to all these people... It's almost like he gets serious and he says, okay, one more thing. We've talked about uh, what you believe and why you believe it. We've celebrated the fellowship of this Roman church. I've given you practical steps on how to live out your faith, but... And then he starts a warning. Even though the church is sound and filled with faithful believers, Paul knows... That Satan, the great deceiver, is always lurking. Do you like that word lurking? It has kind of a sinister sound, doesn't it? I could be following somebody. If you see I'm following them, that's different than to say, <laughs> I'm lurking behind them. Lurking inserts, uh, excuse me, in, insinuates a negative behavior about to come. And so Peter says, the devil... Watch out. He's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. He wants, above all else, to wreak havoc among believers. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 16, starting with verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. Avoid them. For those Who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ with their own bellies. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Your obedience has become known to all. 
Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning what is evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And then jump down to verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith to God, alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Lord, as we spend a few minutes looking at Paul's words here, we're so thankful that your Holy Spirit inspired him to write this epistle. Lord, he wrote it to the Roman Christians, but it's timeless. He wrote it to us also. So I pray that as we look through this, you'll give us understanding, that you'll help us, Lord, to catch Paul's heart, and Lord, to to do what he says, to do what you say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) We, Christ Church at Red Hills, like the early New Testament church, are not immune to the danger of false teachers. How many of you had your COVID vaccinations? Hopefully... You're immune to getting that that virus. I wish there were a vaccination I could get that would make me immune to Satan's wiles. He starts to come and he he lurks and he's ready to prowl and to jump on and to, to cause all sorts of problems. And he says, "Uh oh, that guy's immune." And he leaves. Well, wouldn't you like it if he just leave you alone? <laughs> Unfortunately. There is no such vaccination. This morning, we're going to look together at how to deal with the reality of false teachers. We're going to learn how to recognize them, how to respond to them, and then we'll look at God's role in that battle. But first, what is the battleground that we face today? What is it? There there is false teaching creeping into the church. I'm not talking about Red Hills or you and me But I'm talking about Christ church generally, and we're not immune from that happening. Two main battlegrounds. One is doctrinal. It's scriptural authority. What do we mean by scriptural authority? Uh, Joan and I used to uh, belong to a, a, a brethren church in Long Beach, California. And I loved their theme. The Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. They were sold out to God's word, and they were convinced that there is scriptural authority. What do you think we mean by scriptural authority? Well, when you got a question, should I do this, should I do that? You have a decision to make. Somebody's saying, you know, we ought to go here, we ought to go there. Scriptural authority means, let's go back to the word. What does God's word say? Is that true? Is that something I should be involved in? Is that someplace I should go? Is that something we should do as a church? Scriptural authority is starting to erode among the evangelical churches in America. 
It's a battleground where Satan is sneaking in and he's saying, are are you sure? Did God really say that? Surely he didn't mean that. And people are turning to common sense, if there is such a thing anymore. Or they're turning to tradition. Or they're turning to somebody else who's teaching something just a little bit different than what God's word says. And they're abandoning the authority of God's word. What will be the reaction if someone says something that's not true and you say, but the Bible says, if this person's not a believer, what kind of reaction are you going to get? But the Bible says. Usually it's, it's not a real positive one. They just kind of look at you as being antiquated, stuck in tradition, not in reality. Along with scriptural authority is absolute truth. Do you believe that God's word is true? How many would agree with that? I better see a bunch of hands. (laughs) Yeah. God's word is true. How many believe in absolute standards of right and wrong? Boy, you're in the minority today. You really are. Truth today is seen as relative. That it's true for you, that's okay, but it's not true for me, and you've got to respect that and, and accept my truth as being equally as good as yours. That's the standard today. That's not the standard of God's word. God's word says right and wrong. Thus says the Lord. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. This is not a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is what? What preachers ask you but don't expect an answer. I expect an answer. Okay? Do you, are you convinced that God's word is absolutely true? Pathetic. I'm sorry, but... This is, a, this is a life-changing question. This is a stand we take, and if we really believe it, we're going to be targets. So I'm going to ask you again, enthusiastically, God's word, is it totally inspired? Is it absolutely true? Yes! yes. yes. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're done. <laughs> but you know what? When, when society turns away from accepting God's word as being authoritative and absolutely true, it opens the door to all sorts of compromise. And if if you're not standing on that foundation of the truth of God's word and the authority of God's word, you are vulnerable to compromise. Tolerance. That used to be a very positive word in our English language. It meant everybody has the right to his own opinion and his own way of life, and I'll, you know, I'll respect your differences and my differences. Tolerance has changed over the last 20 years to where now, as it's taught in our universities and all the way down, tolerance has changed to where it's not only do I respect your difference of opinion, I accept your opinion as equally true with mine, or equally true with the truth of God's word. Your truth is your truth, mine is mine, and they're, they're equal. That's not what God's word says. 
He says the heart is deceitful above all things. The mind of man is, is going his own way, but it's not the way that God wants him to go. So if we're not solidly convinced on the truth and the foundation of God's word, we're open to compromise. Now, how does compromise happen? Is it I'm walking right where God wants me to go, and all of a sudden I'm going the opposite direction, just like that? No. Compromise goes, well, yeah, that makes sense. Maybe I was wrong on that. And then you go on a little bit, but you're not on the, on the perfect path. And the more decisions you make and the more error that you agree to that doesn't line up with God's word, pretty soon you find yourself going the opposite direction, not even realizing it. That's compromise. And that's what's happening to many Christians today. The whole world word of, uh, of scientific thought with evolution being taught as absolute truth and the creation narrative just that, a story. That's happening not just in the schools and in the scientific platforms. It's happening in the churches. Evolution is accepted by many, many Christians as being true. But as you look at the foundation of God's word and the absolute truth of God's word, you've got to make a decision. Is God God or is he not? We get to moral issues like abortion and, and, and the whole transgender homosexual world. It's being pushed into our churches. It's not just out there. How do you deal with it when you talk to somebody about truth and error, about issues in our culture that are directly related to principles in God's word? Again, as you take a stand, you become a target. The reality of false teachers, we find them everywhere. It's like Jesus talked about the tares and the wheat field. You sometimes can't tell them apart. I just read something that Lauren Swenson sent me from Christianity Today, the April issue. It's an article called The Splintering of the American Soul. This is just the opening paragraph. New fractures are forming within the American evangelical movement. Fractures that do not run along the usual regional, denominational, ethnic, or political lines. Couples, families, friends, and congregations, once united in their commitment to Christ, are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they are not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to one another. Do you ever think you'd hear that being said about the American church? If we go back into our text in verse 17, it says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the simple. Their method is smooth words and flattering speech, but their goal is deception And it's contrary to what you have learned. Deception. Remember what Jesus talked about wolves and sheep's clothing? And their method being smooth words. It sounds good. It sounds logical. It fits in. And yeah, they're all doing that too. Let's go that direction. Their motive, it says, uh, is, is their own belly, trying to serve their own belly. Talking about our flesh nature. Trying to get self-gratification. 
I was reading um, a commentary by a fellow named Richard Lenski. He was a 19th century uh, Lutheran pastor and theologian. And he, he made some observations that I thought were really kind of interesting. He said, what we're reading here in Romans is strikingly similar to Eve's experience in the garden. When it talks about the goal of these false teachers is deception. What was the first falsehood uttered in the world's history? When Satan, the serpent, was talking to Eve, he said, did God really say that? And he planted doubt in her mind, in her heart. Has God really said that? That still operates today. He works that way in believers. When we're reading God's word and we read something <clears throat> excuse me, that may not sound you know, like we like to do that, you know, the question comes, well, did he really mean that? Oh, maybe not. Maybe, well, let's take it symbolically instead of literally. He deceives. His goal is to divide the body. Eve's sin. Think about this for a second. Eve's sin separated, separated the entire human race from God. That one sin of disobeying, taking Satan's word, allowing her mind to be distorted or thinking, and disobeying God and obeying Satan separated the entire human race from God, and it cost the blood of God's own son to reinstate that union between us and God. He wants to cause divisions. In my version, in verse 17, he says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. You may have stumbling blocks or something like that in your word. Literally, the word for offenses means a trap stick. And it's the picture of a, a bent sapling, bent way down with a rope tied to it, and then it's tied to something down here with a trip wire. And you're walking along, thinking everything's okay. And you trip that wire. The sapling springs up. And you're caught in this net. And you're hanging way above up here. It's a death trap. These false teachers, the ones who would come in and deceive and divide... Their goal is to line up, even if they don't believe it, it lines up with Satan's deception and his goal of killing us. It's a fatal trap. When it talks about belly, think about Eve. What was her action that uh, commemorated her sin? What did she do? She ate the fruit, right? Went into her belly. Again, there's a really cool connection here between what we're seeing here and the whole battle between Adam and Eve and Satan. But then you jump down to um, the verse where it talks about Satan is going to be, uh, in verse 20, God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. What was the prophecy that God gave to Satan in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis? He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Talking about Satan's relationship to the Messiah. Satan bruised Jesus' heel by allowing him to die physically. And he thought he'd won the battle. But what happened? 
Through that crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus stomped on Satan's head. And that's what it says right here. God's going to do through us to Satan as we learn to recognize and reject things that are opposed to God's word. The point is this, that Satan, the great deceiver, has been operating in the same philosophy, the same strategy since the very beginning of time and actually before time began. Remember, Satan was at once called what? An L word, an angel. What was he called? Lucifer. He was one of the chief angels, an angel of light. And what did he do? Because he wanted pridefully to become like God. He deceived a third of the angels in heaven. That's a pretty powerful angel. And he's at work trying to do the same thing to you. He deceived a third of the angels. He deceived Eve. He was using false teachers in New Testament times. Excuse me, in Paul's day, the main uh, false teachers were called Judaizers. They were Christians who were Jews, but believed that in order to be a a good, born-again Christian, you had to obey the law. You had to follow all of the Jewish commands. Now, that was okay for the Old Testament folk. But Jesus came with a new covenant, and Paul was battling these false teachers all the way through his ministry. Wherever Paul would go, they would follow and cause disruption within the city and within the churches. In John's time, the uh, time of First uh, John and the book of Revelation, the false teachers were Gnostics. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And they were very spiritual teachers who would come in and say, but you want to get some more knowledge, the real truth? And they would take these young believers and they would start teaching them this Greek philosophy. That the, the body was essentially evil and the spirit or soul was essentially good. <clears throat> and, excuse me, two aspects of Gnosticism. One was asceticism where they would have to beat the body into submission And there was self-flagellation and all of this other stuff. In the other opposite pole, they would say, well, since the body's evil, but my spirit, the real me, is good, I can do whatever the body wants to do, and I'm okay. That was creeping into the church, and John was writing against that. So how do you recognize them? How do you do what Paul says is take note of these false teachers? A, a, A really important word. For us as believers today, discernment. Can someone tell me what discernment is to discern between right and wrong? Yeah, it's telling a difference between right and almost right. I love that, Simon. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's when, when uh, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, uh, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman not needing to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth or handling aright the word of truth, studying God's word with discernment so that you can separate you know, what God says is true from what others are saying or what others are doing or what you might be feeling you want to do. Discernment is how you are able then to recognize false teachers. I've got just a few bullet points. We'll go over them kind of quickly. The first one, is be committed to the absolute authority of the Word of God. That's the foundation. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, that's the Word of God, with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone, I used to think, was 
the thing that added strength or stability to a, to a foundation or to a slab. But it's not true. A cornerstone is the stone that fits in the corner along which everything else lines up. It's the stone that must be perfectly square, 90-degree angles, so that as they build off of that stone horizontally and vertically, they're building a, a solid structure. God's word is the foundation. Jesus Christ is that which makes everything fit according to what God intends. That's the authority of God's word. Be grounded in the word. So commit to studying it. I know that most of you spend some time during the week reading the Bible. Maybe you do it every morning when you get up or when you go to bed at night. There's a difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible. Paul's words to Timothy, study to show yourselves approved unto God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. You need to set aside time to ponder, to study, to read commentaries or other books that help you understand when you have questions. Learn how to use a concordance so that you let the Bible be a commentary on itself. You're reading something, oh, what a... I'm not sure what that means. Maybe it's explained somewhere else. And I'll go back to my concordance and look for a key word and find other scriptures. So the Bible is the the best commentary on the Bible. Spend time studying God's word. And here's a hard word. Starts with M, and it's one that you don't like. Memorize God's word. Because as you commit God's word to memory... It doesn't just stay in, as Poirot would say, your little gray cells. As you memorize God's word as a believer, the Holy Spirit takes that word, puts it into your heart, and it becomes part of you so that, like Peter says, always have an answer for the hope that is within you. You have an answer. You have ammunition for the Holy Spirit to use when you come into a situation where you ask for discernment or you need wisdom God's word comes to your mind. It's like a flashcard coming back up or reading President Biden's teleprompter. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) That was the picture that came to my mind. I want the Holy Spirit's teleprompter. I want to be able to, when when there's a temptation, and Satan throws it at me, God's word comes right back up, a verse from Proverbs perhaps, you know, or from one of Paul's letters where God speaks to me, interrupts the flow of that deception or that temptation and allows me to take a breath and then go on the right way. It happens, but you have to have God's word in your heart for it to happen. In the book of Joshua, chapter 1-8, he says, you know, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night. He goes on and says, then, then you're going to have success. But you've got to spend time in God's word. And parents, here's the other part. Who's teaching your children? Who is your children's primary teacher? You. Right? You know, a lot of your, fortunately, here in Iron County, our kids have been in school, in Parowan, where we live. They've been face-to-face learning since... August. And it's been great. But do you know what your children are being taught? 
We have some wonderful public school teachers within our own congregation. And, and, and they're able to, to discern between truth and error when they're teaching their kids. But they're not, they don't write the curriculum. And what's happening is our curriculum is being changed. And not just now, in this last couple of years. It's been in process you know, since the 1980s. There's been a trend in changing curriculum. And it's becoming more humanistic as opposed to uh, God-centered. Know what your children are learning. Know what they're watching on TV. You are the primary teachers for your kids. And if they don't get grounded in God's word and the same commitments that you're making, now they're going to be ripe fruit for Satan and deception later on. Your primary responsibility, our primary responsibility, is parents, is teaching the truth of God's word to our kids. Joan and I uh, are blessed to have uh, great-grandchildren. And we're watching them grow up. And, and we have a great relationship with them. And the prayer of our heart is that God will use us to come alongside our granddaughter and, and help her in that job of training her kids into righteousness. So be committed to the absolute authority of God's word. Be familiar. Be grounded in the word. Compare the teaching of others to the teaching of the word. That's what he means when he says, be wise in what is good. The word wise is different than the word wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is is the set of facts, the truth. Wisdom is the skill in applying or using the truth. Be wise, skillful in what is good. Uh, In Acts chapter uh, 17... Paul was talking about the Berean Christians. And he says they were more noble than the saints in Thessalonica because they compared what was being taught to the word of God. So don't just swallow everything you hear. Don't just take what I'm saying as truth. Compare it to God's word. Be wise in doing that. I learned something recently about how you identify or learn to identify Counterfeit money. You know, I, I would think you start studying these fake bills and so you can tell the difference. But uh, that's not true. You don't study the counterfeit money. You study the real thing. You study the genuine bank notes. So you know all the aspects and idiosyncrasies and secrets about how to identify a real uh, $20 bill, let's say. And then when you see a counterfeit $20 bill... And you compare it to what you know to be genuine, you can recognize the counterfeit. And that's pretty cool. And it fits with what we're talking about. How do you recognize false teachers? By, rec- by knowing God's word and comparing what they say to God's word. That's where you say, you know, that's really interesting. But, but the Bible says, get in the habit of doing that. It's healthy skepticism. Surround yourself with godly role models. Second Timothy chapter 3, talking about Paul writing to Timothy, said, said I know where you learned the truth. I know who you're with. And, and Timothy then became like a spiritual son to Paul. And Paul was his mentor. Find somebody more mature than yourself in your spiritual walk and watch them carefully. That's what Paul said to Timothy. He says, watch me. Do what I do. I'm 
scared to say that. I'm not going to say that to anybody. Do what I do. Because I'm not perfect. But at the same time, as, as a young believer, find a mature believer and learn from them. Watch them carefully. Learn from their mistakes also. Fellowship regularly with other believers. Commit yourself to a church that faithfully teaches truth. That will help you then to recognize error. Acts 2.42 says that the church there in Jerusalem devoted itself to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. That was their foundation for their lives. And keep growing in your faith. Be intentional in your faith. Don't just haphazardly float through and, and think that you know, if you put your Bible under your pillow at night, somehow through spiritual osmosis, it's going to put God's word in your head. I used to think that was true before stu- when I was studying for a test. It didn't work. It's work. Be, have a consistent, quiet time. Have a personal Bible study. Keep growing in your faith. That's how you recognize false teachers. So how do you respond to them? He says, turn away from false teachers. Separate yourself from them. And separate yourself from their teaching. He says, be simple. He said, be, you know, chase after the wise, but be simple in relationship to evil. Now, what does that mean? The word simple there has the idea of being innocent. You don't have to go after and learn all about how to do bad. You don't have to study falsehood to the point where Satan can use that then to get you focused on it. When I was doing my graduate work back in the 70s, I was taking a a course on demonology in in the seminary. That was a course I should have shied away from, although it was a required course. We had learned about the Holy Spirit, and now we were learning about Satan, black and white, or white and black. So I, I took this course in demonology, and I took it from a, a professor who had been a missionary in uh, West Africa. And he, is, he had learned through experience the dangers and the power of Satan working through witch doctors and, and, and all of this. And it piqued my interest, and I thought, you know, I should know more about this. And I began reading books on it, Christian books, but about different aspects of demonology. And my wonderful wife, who is wiser than I, pulled me aside one day and said, I think you're getting too far into this. You know as much as you need to know about this. Let's focus on the positive. And she was right. And Satan was using that to, uh, it wasn't really obsession, but it was moving that direction. And it wasn't healthy. Satan is a deceiver. And he will take you from pure light and gradually shift it to an off-white then to maybe a light gray and pretty soon, you see what I'm saying? You've got to be careful. Well, what's the result in us with all of this? Look down to verses 25 through 27. I love this. He says, first of all, like we talked about, God's going to give you victory over Satan. He's going to crush Satan under your feet. How does that happen? Yeah, I, I remember when I used to work in the mountains in college at a camp, we would take the young students on a, a nature hike. 
But in Southern California, the mountains were dry and there were lots of rattlesnakes. And so one of us would be at the front, one at the back, and one at the middle of the line with a shovel. And our job was not so much to herd the kids, it was to watch out for and listen for a rattlesnake. And when I heard what rattlesnake, I found it coiled up there, and I wanted to kill something more than I ever thought I would want to kill something. <laughs> you know, you know I, didn't, I wasn't foolish enough to put my foot out there to step on his head and stick the shovel out, and he would strike against the blade of the shovel, and when he was stretched out, I'd chop his head off. And then I'd chop his rattles off and keep them for a souvenir. <laughs> but you learn how to kill a rattlesnake. You learn how to defeat Satan but they are temporary victories. When Satan is trying to draw you away or get you involved in something you shouldn't get involved in, and through the power of the Holy Spirit you have victory, uh, you don't say, okay, I won, battle's done, war's over. The war's not going to be over until Christ comes again and takes you home. But we get victory over Satan. Sometimes it means walking away, separating ourselves. And then he says, God will establish you. And this is really cool in verses 25 through 27. Now, him to, to him who is able to establish you. What does the word establish mean? What picture did you get in your mind? Is it somebody who's, who's standing in quicksand and, and is not trying to get and, and getting his good footing? Or is it somebody who's standing on solid ground and is able to, to resist whatever's coming at him? Establish you. That's what he talks about in... Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 about spiritual warfare. By putting on the armor of God, God is able to make you stand. And having done all, he says, to stand firm. That's God's will for you and me. And as we follow what he says to do here, as we put into practice all of these doctrines that we've learned, in the power of the Holy Spirit, wearing our spiritual armor, we're able to have victory and stand fast against the wiles of the devil. He says, so to him who's able to establish you, and here's how we establish you, it's according to the gospel, according to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret. Talking about the fact that, that God has a plan bigger than Israel. It includes the whole world. But it's now made manifest according to the prophetic scriptures that are made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience to the faith. Wow. He's talking to you and me. And he says then we should all with one accord say to God alone, wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. We've taken off a big chunk of stuff today. And I hopefully you're going to be like the Berean uh, church, and, and you're going to took what I, take what I said, you're going to compare it to what you know in God's word, you're going to pray, and you're going to ask God to use it to give you discernment, wisdom, strength, and power through the Holy Spirit to be who God wants you to be, to recognize those who are not telling the truth and to confront them and to stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this time together. Thank you, God, for your word.